Find a spot, we'll get started. All right, break it up. Come on in. And you need a set of notes because these are new notes. We finished last week, the handout we had last week. So everybody will need a set when you came in. The guys are diligently trying to get those distributed. Anybody not have a set of notes? We got one over here, guys. And over here, yep. All right, good work. So the bagel time with the, uh, were any of them burnt? The uh, bagels, everything was good? I didn't get, I didn't have any, so. But everybody's okay, and I think the fire people left and all that, so. Welcome to our second hour in our fifth session in this series. You see on the screen and on the front cover of your notes, Identity Crisis, Who Does God Say I, I Really Am? And this is page 12, and if you don't have the previous 11 pages, then we would be happy to get those to you if you text us. Uh, CBC Connect to 97,000, let us know you need them. We'll email them to you. Top of page 12. In the last session, we learned that people often develop a sense of self-worth based on their inherited and chosen performance standards, whether intelligence, income, looks, profession, social status, skills, talents, professional accomplishments, and so on. So let me stop there and, and parse that just a little bit. We say that people develop a sense of self-worth based on, notice now, inherited and chosen. So the inherited piece would just be things that you grew up with, your environment, and people told you these are the important things. And so you conform to those important things. And then others, then you have chosen for yourself, maybe not based on your upbringing, maybe not based on people who are close to you, but rather through the media, through more distant uh, influences. But through both of those means, both your environment and then the choices that you've made, we each adopt these kinds of standards to which we compare ourselves. Now beware, as I have said previously in this series, beware of allowing others to determine your well-being because that is the danger in this, is that you adopt these standards that are imposed on you from others, from outside. If they are not God's standards, then they are by definition then inferior. They are man-made. They are, they are fallible. They may be good, but they may not be. So therefore, beware of allowing others to determine your well-being. And as I have done several times in this series, I've given parents some tips on your children. Be careful, parents, with a child who is overly eager to please. That child can get a reputation as just the best kid. Man, isn't that, the best? Isn't that just the most polite kid? And they may be genuinely that, so I don't want to discount that. But you as a parent need to be wise in understanding the heart of your child because their heart is like your heart. And because they want to please, they can put on a sort of facade that covers other things that are going on. 
And I have seen this happen. I have, I have seen families who were absolutely sure that their child was just top-notch. Top-notch spiritually, top-notch socially. And, and, and I've seen this. And then they're devastated when they find out, hey, there were some other things going on in that, in that kid's heart. And those things are un, uncovered. So I don't mean to be wary of the polite kids we have in our church. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful, parents, that you're teaching them that. But understand that the heart runs deep. And those can be very superficial, and they can cover over other things that are going on. So that child who goes out of his or her way to please may be a good kid. They may be an Eddie Haskell. That's an old reference for old people like, like me. But we learn to live up to what most uh, people expect. And we need to evaluate whether or not those are the standards we ought to be pursuing. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't care what others may want. You may come away from some of what I'm saying and say, you know, pastor is saying don't, don't conform to man-made standards. Therefore, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Well, don't automatically jump to that conclusion that you shouldn't care what anybody else thinks. However, here's what I am saying is that you don't put an ultimate value on what anybody else thinks. You don't allow that to determine your well-being. So you may indeed need to concern yourself with what other people think, but you don't put ultimate value in it ever. How do I know if I'm putting ultimate value in it? The effect it has on me. If I'm not getting their approval, what does that do to me? So you know you have made that otherwise good thing an ultimate thing. And when you make a good thing an ultimate thing, that becomes an idolatrous so you might need to care what other people think, but don't put ultimate value on that. Now, I say you might need to care what other people think. The Lord may want you to care what other people think. I mean, for example, does God want us as Christians to care about, well, let me put it this way. Does God want us as Christians to care about what the world thinks of us? Now, in one sense, you could say, nah, who cares? Bunch of worldlings. They've rejected Jesus. They don't know our God. Of course they're going to hate us. Well, the problem with that is that, allows, that can allow you to just go along, me to just go along and be whatever jerk we want to be. And we've got sort of a, a jerk card, you know. We can say, hey, I'm a Christian. They're not. They're never going to understand me. So I can be any way I, can be any way I want. And I know people who, who do that. But the Lord does tell us, doesn't he, to concern ourselves with how we are viewed by outsiders. It tells us that. Colossians chapter 4. Be careful in the way you behave toward outsiders. And that's in an evangelistic context. So that you don't misrepresent what a Christian is. So, yeah, I, I might need to care what other people think because the Lord may want me to do that. The Bible does say I need to care. Now, I don't ultimately care. And I'm certainly not going to care to the extent that I'm going to disobey something God says for me to do in order to gain the approval of anyone, let alone people that are outside of God's family. But yes, I do need to care. In fact, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, says that he cared actually quite a bit what other people thought. 
1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, though I am free and I belong to no man, I take myself slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. I have become to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. There's a very clear instance of the Apostle Paul saying, yeah, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the mission, I do care how I'm perceived. And so I'm going to walk very, very carefully. But it's certainly not ultimate. Paul gave his life. I mean, if he ultimately cared what other people thought, then he would have died a natural death rather than died by execution. He was imprisoned for standing up for what he believed and doing what the Lord had told him to do. So beware allowing others to determine your well-being, making that your ultimate criteria for how you then view yourself. It may be that we need to live up to what people expect of us, And that may be a good thing, it may be a good missional and evangelistic thing, but it cannot become ultimate for us. You do not then react to what I'm saying by saying, well, then I don't care what anybody thinks. Have you ever noticed that people who do that, who become nonconformists, so they just sort of drop out, but then they like find each other? And nonconformists have like a dress code? So, you know, I'm going back again, but back in the day, like beatniks and stuff, they all had sort of a beatnik look. Everybody knows what a beat, you know, knew what a beatnik was supposed to look like. If you're going to drop out of society and you're going to be hip and you're going to be a, a beatnik, then you had a certain look. You had to have kind of the hat on the side, and you, you know, have a little certain kind of mustache and all of that. And that was the way, that was the way they did it. You know, people who drop, drop out and say, I'm going to go goth. Well, there's a way to dress for that. See, the truth is everybody wants to be included. And even people say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Turns out they care what other people think. So let's just admit that. In fact, we will say here later that the desire to conform can be a good thing because God has made us as social beings, and that's part of then pursuing relationships. So rather than denying that, let's accept that as a truth but don't allow anybody other than God's opinion of us to become ultimate. And we saw, top of page 12, that those who do so, who give themselves to these inherited and chosen performance standards, then fall into problems like what we looked at the last couple of weeks, the performance trap. I must meet certain conditions to feel good about myself. Or today, the approval trap. I must be approved by certain people to feel good about myself. So here's the approval trap. The desire to be liked, respected, and noticed is strong in all of us. As I said a moment ago, in and of itself, that desire is okay. It's part of our God-given desire for loving relationships. No one naturally likes disapproval and rejection. But if not checked, it can dominate. Seeking others' approval is a danger that's warned against in Scripture. I mentioned last week Proverbs 29 and verse 25. 
Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is kept safe. I remind you that that idea of fear is reverence, so I revere people too much. And that becomes then a snare for me. That's from Proverbs 29. In the book of Proverbs, you have the fear of the Lord many times as the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. And so now here you have juxtaposed to that fear of man, reverence for people and what they think as opposed to reverence for God and what, and what He thinks. That fear of man idea takes all sorts of shapes. Uh, we have a book in our resource center called When People Are Big and God is Small. When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. And it's all about this, the whole book about the fear of man and how it manifests itself. Isaiah, do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. Paul in Galatians 1 says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So again, he did care about it, as I read from 1 Corinthians 9, but not ultimately so. The desire for approval shows up in different forms in each of us. It sometimes brings harmful or negative effects. So one manifestation is in internalizing and anger, resentment, hostility, bitterness. Those who experience rejection often desire revenge. So this is someone who feels every perceived slight. And they remember them. And I don't want you to raise your hand and confess to me. But well, I'll confess to you. You don't have to confess to me. I'll confess to you. I, I remember still some things where I was slighted as a kid or as a teenager or as a younger person. Still to this day, I still remember some of those. So when those things were, those things were hurtful, those lodge deep and they stay with you for a long time. Now the question is, what are you going to do with it? And we've all had that. And what many of us do is we internalize that and we nurse that. We think about that. We think about what they said about us or what they failed to do for us that they were doing for other people, how we were mistreated in whatever way. I'm not belittling that. It may be a genuine mistreatment. It may have been genuine slights, so real or perceived. But every one of those slights, if we're not careful, we store those up and we nurse them. And we rehearse them in our minds. And then one of a handful of things occurs. We clam up. That's one. We just sort of, and you know, you're around that person and you're just going, what's up with them? And you're trying to talk to them, but you can't and they don't reciprocate. You know, I was taught when you, when you communicate, it's kind of like throwing a ball back and forth. So, you know, you say something to throw the ball to that person and then they're supposed to throw the ball back verbally, but you like throw it and they catch it and they just sort of keep it and they're looking at you and then you're trying to dance a little bit to have the conversation some more and so you say, well, let me, what about this? And you do three or four of these and then you realize, you know, they don't really want to talk to me. I'm pretty dense. I do about six or eight of those and then I finally get the hint. But what's going on with, what's going on with that? Very often it's somebody who's carrying this baggage around with them. These slights in there, they've internalized it and they clam up, but inside there's a slow burn. There's a seething going on about people and how people have treated me. 
You see that? You see that in, a, again, a kid? Starts young? Things aren't going the way they want with their peer group at church? Let me tell you. So they don't like the way things are going on with their peer group at church or at school or at work or whatever it is. They start internalizing that. They start clamming, clamming up. Or they don't clam up. They're more talkative. They're more extroverted. So they talk down. They don't clam up. They talk down. Everybody's an idiot. The whole world is, but they let you know it. And so this is the cynical person that you're around. They share their cynicism with you regularly. They clam up. They talk down. Or, I mean, you know, those are bad enough. Those harm you. Both of them harm you. The talking down harms others. But then there can be a third, a blow-up. You know, so you've got the clam up and you've got the talk down, but then you've got the blow-up, and the blow-up can take all kinds of forms. You guys ever notice a pattern with, uh, I hate to bring this up because it's so horrible, but you notice a pattern with like school shootings? Who's doing that? You look at that kid, and that kid is someone who has internalized every slight that went on with them in their whole life. Not everyone, not every kid that did it, but most of them. So clam up, talk down, blow up, all of them bad internalizing the shame a feeling of worthlessness because you believe no one no one likes you finding identity socially for example thinking of yourself as a member of a sports or leadership team if you're not on the team you consider yourself to be a failure so uh, our Annie Annie's not in here so I can talk about her Annie is serving and with Lainey and their husbands in the youth group right now. Uh, but Annie especially, you know, uh, Lainey was, Lainey, I'll talk about both of them. Lainey was very easy, and she was very uh, cooperative. But we had to do the same thing with Lainey that I said earlier, because Lainey was just very cooperative, very polite, and would go along and do what you told her to do. So on the one hand, you thank God for that. On the other hand, we know that she's got a heart in her like we have in us. And so we wanted to be careful about that. And we talked to her about that. In fact, I remember when she was a teenager, her reading a book that her mother got for her called Grace for the Good Girl. That's a great title. Grace for the Good Girl. Because the good girl needs God's grace as well. And so she, thank the Lord, was able to see that. Uh, Annie, on the other hand, they're different. And so Annie uh, was, you know, willing to push. <laughs> Tell her what to do. She says, why? <laughs> she, wants to know, she wants to know a reason. So she didn't just automatically go along with what we told her to do, but here was the, here was the great news. She also didn't go along with what anybody else was telling her to do either, which meant she was not going to easily follow the crowd. And I told her that. You know, I didn't say it in these words to her, but in effect, I'm saying, hey, having to explain stuff to you all the time is kind of a pain in the neck. <laughs> but I wanted to express to her, hey, here's the positive side of how God has made you. That stubbornness that you have, I want to see that stubbornness manifest itself when you're with a group of kids. 
And those kids say, this is what we're going to do. And you say, uh-uh, that's stupid. You guys are all stupid. <laughs> you don't have to call them stupid, but just don't go, okay? And sure enough, thank God, that was what, that was what ended up happening. But if you feel like you have, you have to belong to the group, then you'll go along with the group. You know, and if they told you to jump off a bridge, you know, the old, would you jump off a bridge? Yeah, lots of people would because that's what the group's doing. Here's another manifestation of it. Hypersensitivity to criticism. Complaints and negative evaluations can begin to control us if approval becomes too important. So if you get criticism, then how thin-skinned you are about that is manifesting how much the approval of people care. You, you care about the approval of people. Now, who is it that gets criticism? Anybody who does something. The one way to avoid criticism is just don't do anything. That's the peanut gallery. That's the people who sit on the sidelines and complain about the people who are in the game. But I'm here to tell you, if you're in the game, then you're open for criticism. So if you're doing, you're willing to take on and do anything that involves other people, you have now opened yourself up for criticism. But you ought to be willing to do that because we're called to ministry. Ministry means other people. That means you getting involved with other people, me getting involved with other people. But it also means people may not like the way I do it and then criticize. And any of you that are thinking about, say, pastoring, grow a pretty thick hide, okay? And our congregation has been great, really, for 20 years. Great. I know lots of pastors. I know lots of churches. I'm good here. I like this place. I love you all. However, it doesn't mean I haven't gotten my share because it just goes with the turf. And so then I, any of us, have to decide, okay, what am I going to do with that? Is my, is my well-being going to be adversely affected because I've got people who don't like what I'm doing? I need to think about it. Maybe I need to change what I'm doing. Maybe they're right. All of that, but once you've thought about it, then you just got to plow ahead. Some of you know the name Paul Tripp. And he's a uh, biblical counselor. He's written a number of books. And uh, Paul Tripp, years ago, was a pastor. And he said when he was a young pastor, uh, he was trying to struggle to learn how to preach. <laughs> and, you know, he's a few months into it, and a guy in his church comes up to him after he's preached a sermon, gives him, this was the days of cassette tapes, gives him a cassette tape, and says, hey, listen to this. So it's whoever his favorite preacher is. Back in those days, MacArthur cassettes tapes were going all over, so it was probably a MacArthur cassette tape. But he gives him a cassette, and he says, hey, listen to this, and you'll learn how to preach a decent sermon. Oh, hey, thanks, brother. <laughs> you know, and the guy's putting his heart and soul into doing what he's doing, and then you have somebody do that. But here's what he said. He said, in the weeks after that, I would get up to preach... And there was only one person I was thinking about in that congregation, and it was that guy. So I'm looking at this congregation, and there are all these sheep 
and then there's one sheep that's got a head that's 10 foot tall. It's the only one that I'm seeing out there. And that went on for weeks. I'm trying to please this person because their criticism, their slight hurt me so much. And then thanks be to God, the Spirit of God got a hold of him. He said, hey, wait a minute, you've got a whole flock of people here who need what you're giving them. And you've made that guy with the 10-foot-tall sheep head an idol. So do your best before me. Care about what I want from you, Paul Tripp, says the Lord. And then he says, that guy still didn't like him, (laughs) but it changed his approach completely. So how sensitive you are to criticism reveals how much you are beholden to the approval of people. Bottom of page 12, avoiding people, isolation. Sometimes it becomes difficult to develop close personal relationships for people who frequently experience rejection and and criticism. And again, that's because they put ultimate weight on that rejection and criticism. Top of page 13, bowing to peer pressure, becoming easily manipulated. Those who find their self-worth and approval are people pleasers, so are willing to do what they believe is necessary to be liked and therefore valuable. So you're, you're in a group like this, the community of faith, the family of God. This is the best group, not this particular church, but churches that believe the Bible and are a community of God-fearing people, brothers and sisters, is the best group you could ever be involved in. But it's still got all the stuff that goes with it. But it's the group that God says is the one you ought to care about. More than any other group you're involved in. This, is, this one's his. So care about, care about this one. But even so, you're in it. I'm glad you are. And then you hear Pastor Larry. Pastor Larry some weeks ago taught a lesson on serving in the church. And then I say some stuff today about serving in the church. And we're big on serving in the church. And if you go to Membership 101, you know, we give you that passion skills inventory thing and you fill that out. And we're trying to find a place for you to serve. So there's this intentional, we think, good pressure to urge you, encourage you to serve the Lord. But you know, if you're not careful, you can be in a group like any kind of group and even a church group. And you can say, all right, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff so that people will really like me. Now, I don't know anybody, I'm not, okay? (laughs) I don't know anybody's heart, so I'm not suggesting that. I just know that's a real thing. I just know that's a real temptation. Because whatever the standards of the group are, then people will try to conform to the standards of the group and trying to conform to even good standards of a good group. You can find yourself wanting to do it for the approval of the group. So be careful about that, whether it's here or any place else. Pride. Like the performance trap, the inordinate desire for approval does not, doesn't always lead to a low sense of self-esteem. It can actually lead to puffed-up, self-exalting arrogance for people who actually find themselves actually achieving and meeting all those things. So you set up all of these man-made things. If you meet a bunch of them, well, look at me. I would also suggest to you that even people who don't meet them there's still a pride in that they resent the fact that they don't measure up. So that's still a, 
a self-centeredness, a self-focus. Whether we meet them or whether we don't, that's a possibility. So what's the solution? Last week we saw that two specific aspects of our salvation solve the problem of the performance trap. On the cross, Christ became our propitiation. We saw at salvation, I was justified. God's anger for all my failure to measure up has been turned away, and now I have a totally righteous standing before Him. He views me just as if I'd met every standard. I mean, if you're, ever, if, you're ever, if you're feeling down this afternoon, you're feeling down this week, I mean, just pull out page 13, just look at that line. He views me as if I'd met every standard. Thanks be to God, even though I haven't. Following are some other theological truths that demonstrate God's approval for His children. Regeneration. It means to impart new life to that which was spiritually dead. We read about it in Ephesians 2. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now that verse, verse 4, that starts out, because of His great love for us. <clears throat> that verse actually starts with the word but. But because of His great love for us. And it is contrasting what goes before. And what goes before in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and by nature we were all objects of wrath. That's what it says. Yikes. And so if you just leave it there, we're in a world of hurt. But, verse 4, this great contrast, this gospel contrast, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive when we were dead. So if you belong to Jesus, the Bible teaches there was a time when you were dead spiritually. And God breathed life into your spiritually dead corpse and made you alive. That's what regeneration is. And you go, well, I know I had to like raise my hand or walk an aisle or sign a card or I had to do something. So I couldn't have been completely you know, floating on top <laughs> and dead, right? True, but when you did that, you were responding to what God first did. God breathed life and then you responded. God gave you life so that you could respond, otherwise you're dead. And that's why then Paul, who writes this, says, it's by grace you have been saved. He's saying that's how magnificent the grace is. You got nothing going on. You got nothing to recommend you. You're dead spiritually, and God, on His initiative, breathes life into you. And then you turn to Him. He regenerates you. It's later in that same chapter, remember. He says, It is by grace, verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's the work of regeneration that makes us new creatures in Christ. It's the new birth that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about. John 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit Flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit gives birth to spirit. The prophet Ezekiel 
associated the work of the Spirit with the cleansing of water by the Word of God. And so when Jesus says here, water and the Spirit, he's talking about the work of the Spirit and the Word of God together, making someone then alive. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but it's the Spirit that gives birth to Spirit. And because of regeneration, our nature has been made new. The Spirit of God lives within us. Romans 8, you are in the realm of the Spirit because the Spirit of God lives in you. So, growth and change are promised to us. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And with that same thought, look at the top of page 14 then. The presence of new life then guarantees the potential for change. So this is how regeneration then helps lift you out of your fog, lift me out of my fog. If I've been given spiritual life by God, and if I'm a child of God, I have, I've been regenerated, born again, born from above, given life that He breathed into my spiritually lifeless body. If all of that is true, here's what it means. Now I've got the ability that I didn't have before. Every Christian, every child of God has the ability to live for God. Few things are more frustrating than to be told, do something, and you know that you don't have the equipment to do it. You don't have the ability to do it. That's exactly what the law was. This is why nobody could keep the law, and this is why the law was such drudgery. Because God gives a standard of the law, live up to the law, and no one has the power to do it. Literally no one. Save Jesus Christ. The law gave you the standard, but the law did not supply the ability to meet the standard. But here's what happens in the new covenant. That's the old covenant. The new covenant. Every person is regenerated. Every person has the Spirit of God. So every person not only has the law of Christ now, but He's given them the ability to achieve it. Frustration, to be sure, because even though I have that ability, I don't exercise it the way I should. Same with you, I am sure. But nevertheless, we have that, and it ought to then Give us this hope and this desire, actually, every day to move forward because I can do this. If somebody tells you, hey, look, we got a 5K run in six months, I want you to be a part of it. But you've got two, you know, two feet that both have uh, heel spurs. And you can't get up and, and exercise to get ready for it. How frustrating is that, Right? But as a Christian, every day you've got the equipment you need to be able to carry out what God says. Top of page 14, the presence of that new life guarantees the potential for change. We can get better. We can leave our failures behind and look forward to a better life. We now have the promise of eternal life, a blessing infinitely more desirable than gaining approval from other people. Titus 3, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us, and here's that water piece again from John 3, washing of rebirth and renewal 
by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So here's what that means. That every Christian has this hope, this, and it ought to be a joyful hope that Lord has given... The Lord has given me His Spirit, and therefore I have the ability to do what He has has laid out. It also means that all of us should set expectations for ourselves to actually obey the Lord. (laughs) He's given us the ability to do that. Why? Because He wants us to do it. And He deserves that we do it. So all of us should want to do that and set that expectation for ourselves. In our churches, too often, we have what, in a different context former President George W. Bush called the soft bigotry of low expectations. Anybody remember that? It's kind of a cool phrase, I think. The soft bigotry of low expectations. What he was saying is too often we say to people, you can't do it, here, let me do it for you. And he's saying there's a kind of a bigotry that goes, all its own that goes with that. To tell somebody you can't and therefore, I have to do it for you. Now, there are times where people are indeed helpless. They need help. And so we of all people ought to want to do that. But in, in church, in our spiritual lives, we should not have any version of the soft bigotry of low expectations, the idea that there are people in the body of Christ who can't move on and shouldn't move on and up. Regeneration, adoption. Adoption is the legal placement into a family as their child. At the moment of salvation, God places you into His family. He gives you all the rights and privileges of a family. God is your legal father. Ephesians 1, in love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. And being placed into God's family as His children implies His total acceptance and enduring love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Romans chapter 8. So here you have Hebrews chapter 12, and it talks about the fact that you as a son or a daughter then are corrected by a God who loves you. So now in this adoption relationship, you have a radically different perspective on the correction that God brings into your life. Now as a child of God, I should welcome that. Have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. What son is not disciplined by his father? And if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, you are illegitimate children and not true sons. This is an indication of God's deep love for you. That he puts you through things that bring you, are designed to bring you out the other side more like him. How does adoption impact? Approval addiction? If one keeps in mind he's adopted and approved by God, whether anyone else approves, then doesn't ultimately have to matter. Hear this, God is your father and his family is your family. For every Christian, God is your father and his family is your family. We've got in this congregation people from all sorts of backgrounds. People who didn't have family to speak of. People who had family that didn't act like family. People who had those that should be loving them who harmed them. And God has brought you to a family. 
God is your father, and now his family is your family. What a blessed way to look at your life. And then finally, reconciliation. The work of Christ removed the separation between God and man that was caused by sin. Christ has restored for us that which sin destroyed, perfect fellowship between God and ourselves. We are no longer estranged from God. In fact, we're able to stand before Him holy and without blemish, totally accepted. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. God does not then simply tolerate you. We are actually 100% acceptable to the supreme judge, the perfect, holy, righteous God Almighty. We are acceptable to Him for only one reason. Christ abolished the sin barrier and He made peace with God through His blood on the cross. The righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. This truth releases us then from the approval trap. If you're saved, you can never be more acceptable to God than you are now. So why do I serve God if I'm already 100% approved? See, when I was growing up in my Pentecostal church, in fact, I was told this. I was told this by a good friend of mine, a friend of mine who is a Pentecostal pastor in our area to this day, and he's a really great guy. But... 40 years ago, he and I were talking about this. And we were talking about eternal security and the fact that I am eternally secure because I'm a child of God and therefore I know where eternity is going to be spent. Come what may. The Bible teaches eternal security. And he said to me, if I believed what you believe, this is what he said, I'd hang up my Bible. That was what he said. It. I'll hang up my Bible. Stop living for God. Why should I live for God if I already know I'm going to heaven? Pretty dangerous, isn't it? Because what is being suggested there? I live for God in order to earn heaven. You see, but we don't, we don't live for God to earn heaven. We've already got heaven. So why do we? Because we love the God who first loved us. Because out of gratitude, we give ourselves to the one who gave himself for us. It's a beautiful thing when people who know they're already going to heaven still give their lives for the one who gave his life for them. The reason you do that is because you realize how marvelous this is, what he's done for you. And so you gladly do that. That's what you see in your New Testament, the apostles doing and the people around them. You can never be more acceptable to God than you are right now, but you still want to please God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, we make it our goal to please Him. Why do I want to please Him? Because He's my Father the same way I wanted to, in a greater way, but the way I wanted to please my mom, my dear mom. My dad died when I was 11, but I wanted to please my mom. One of the things that kept me on the straight and narrow to the extent I was on the straight and narrow was picturing the disappointment in my mom's face if I displeased her. How much more our Father's face, who has done all for us. Those seeking approval must find it in a relationship with God. If God approves of you, it doesn't ultimately matter what others think. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you again for today, the Lord's day, for your word, for your spirit, for your people. The opportunity now to think about this issue of all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and how that has very practical application to the way we think about ourselves, the way we deliberate about who we are, the way we think about the circumstances we're in and what the people involved in those circumstances do, how they do it, what they say, what they think of us. All of that ultimately has to be related back to the truths of the gospel. And so I pray that you will help me to do that. Help my brothers and sisters to do that. And as a result of that, we can be people who live courageously. Yeah, we'll be criticized, but we're going to get in the game. Because that criticism is not ultimate for us. What's ultimate for us is your well done. What's ultimate for us is the Lord Jesus and what he has done. Help us then to live that way this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, uh, men. We have a favor. We need to stack chairs in here because we have our Enchanted Trail uh, event coming up this Saturday. So we want to get the chairs out of the way. So here's what we're asking you to do is, men, if you can stick around, ladies, if you can clear out so you don't get hit by any of the chairs that are flying. But they, they get stacked in stacks of five. And when you stack them, they actually go straight if you do them right. Here's why I say that. I've stacked many a chair in here, okay? I know how they go, and I've seen many stacks. And some stacks are like crooked, and they look like they're going to fall down and all that. That's because they're not stacked right, okay? So you can stack them like straight up. They're made to actually go straight up. So, so five of them. And you can just leave them in, Larry, in stacks of five just right where they are, right? And then we'll clear them out. So just stack them and leave them. Thanks very much. Have a good week.